Okay, our topic, the future of Israel part two, and um, we're going to be looking at three things today. Uh, our first text will be Matthew 24, 32 to 34, the parable of the fig tree. And uh, then we're going to look at uh, Jesus' statement about Ju Jerusalem being trampled under, from Luke 21, Ju Jerusalem trampled underfoot until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. Uh, that's another important passage. And then we're going to get back to Romans 11, and we're going to finish up the part about Israel uh, toward the end of the chapter, which is a difficult uh, thing. Now, before we continue our examination of Romans 11 and Paul's explanation of ethnic Israel's future, we want to consider a common proof text for the restoration of Israel as a nation within their original borders which, by the way, is also used as a proof text by dispensationalists uh, that we're living in the last generation. This is the terminal generation. Christ's going to come back in your lifetime. Now, you, you young fellas uh, probably don't remember that, but me and Andrea, being older, we're familiar with Hal Lindsey and all those things. <clears throat> a very large group of dispensational end-time writers speak of our generation as the generation of the fig tree. In fact, after this view was first popularized by Hal Lindsey in the early 1970s, a whole number, a whole host of dispensational books came out promoting this idea. <clears throat> dispensational books and articles. And uh, back then, in the, of course, in the 70s, it was Christ is going to come back by 1988 and the rapture is going to happen around 1981. Uh, that, that was a very common view. Predicting the rapture and second coming of Christ, uh, first in the 1980s, and then um, when that didn't happen, when that didn't pan out, they, they switched to uh, a later date, and they said, well, they didn't have Jerusalem yet. They didn't get Jerusalem until 1967. Here's some of the titles. 88 Reasons Why the Rapture is in 1988. Uh, that's uh, Ed, Edgar C. Wisnar. That book, after <laughs> that didn't pan out, he came out with another book, and he changed the date. Armageddon, Appointment with Destiny. That book came out in 1988. That's uh, Grant Jeffrey. And he set the date at the year 2000. The Rise of Babylon, The Sign of the End Times. Charles Dyer, Prophecy 2000, Rushing to Armageddon. David Lewis. Uh, and there was a very, very, very popular Tim LaHaye book series about the rapture and the tribulation which uh, made him a very rich man. It was a bestseller for years. That was back, I believe, in the 90s uh, that that was happening, right? The 90s. <clears throat> and then, of course, there were uh, books by the president of uh, Dallas Seminary, John F. Wolverd. One of them was called Oil in the Middle East. And, of course, Israel becoming a nation back in the land, we are told, is the preeminent sign, the chief sign, that this is the terminal generation. Where this is the last generation on earth, Christ coming back. Well, let us examine the passage and Hal Lindsey's view of it to see if the popular dispensational view is correct. Here's Matthew 24, 32 to 34. <clears throat> now learn the parable of the fig tree. When its branch has already become tender and puts forth leaves, you know that summer is near. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it is near at the doors. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. And here's what Hal Lindsey says. <clears throat> the late great planet Earth, to this day, to this day, besides the Bible, it's the biggest selling Christian, you know, book in print. It sold over 25 million copies back in the 70s. Here's what Talens, he says, quote, The most important sign in Matthew has to be the restoration of the Jews to the land and the rebirth of Israel. Even the figure of speech, fig tree, has been a historic symbol of national Israel. When the Jewish people, after nearly 2,000 years of exile, under relentless persecution, became a nation again on May 24th, 1948, the fig tree put forth its leaves, its first leaves. Jesus said that this would indicate that he is at the door, ready to return. 
Then, he, then I say, truly I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Matthew 24, 34. New American Standard Bible. What generation? Obviously, in context, the generation that would see the signs, chief among them the rebirth of Israel. A generation in the Bible is something like 40 years. If this is a correct deduction, then within 40 years or so of 1948, all these things could take place. Many scholars who have studied Bible prophecy all their lives believes, believe that this is so. End of quote. So there's the view. Now, I don't know. I haven't been uh, in touch with... I used to have a whole... I used to have over 100 books teaching this kind of stuff. And I thinned out my library when I moved um, to Michigan and got rid of a lot of stuff that was really kind of crap. But... Um, so I'm not sure what they're, they're teaching now, but I'm sure it's still popular. This is the last generation on earth. Jesus is coming back. The rapture could happen tomorrow. Well, there are a number of serious problems with the typical dispensational view. First, they assign a very special signification to the use of the fig tree when the context only indicates a correspondence between the budding of the tree and the nearness of the judgment upon Israel. In poetic sections of scripture, Israel is compared to a vine, a fig tree, pomegranate, olive, palm, and cedar. Psalm 92.12, Ezekiel 17, Hosea 9.10, etc. The New Testament church or spiritual Israel is called the vine, John 15, the olive tree, Romans 11, the lump of dough, Romans 11, the flock, Isaiah 40, and Jeremiah 23, and uh, Matthew 20, 26, 31, Luke 12, 31, John 10, 16. So certain metaphors are used to say something about Israel. That's why metaphors or poetic language is used. A cedar tree signifies strength. While olives, pomegranates, and figs signify blessing and prosperity. It takes a while to grow a, a tree where you get the fruit. And these are expensive, luxurious items that you would have in addition to your barley or your wheat. So to have these things was an incredible blessing. Fig, uh, olive trees and fig trees. And, of course, pomegranates. <clears throat> Jeremiah uses rotten figs to describe Israel's corruption and apostasy. In Jeremiah 24. And the idea that the fig tree represents Israel becoming a nation again has absolutely nothing within that context to support it. It's very arbitrary. The proof that the use of the fig tree is, uh, is not what dispensers claim it is is found in the parallel account in Luke. Now listen to the parallel account. In Luke 21, 29 to 30, Jesus says, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they are already budding, you see and know for yourselves that summer is near. If the fig tree represents Israel becoming a nation, then to be consistent, one would have to say that several other peoples that were once Na uh, nations must also become nations again because there's all different kinds of trees getting their buds. So clearly, in the what Jesus is talking about, he's not emphasizing the significance of the fig tree representing Israel. The point is the budding. Second, the dispensational view incorrectly assumes that Jesus is speaking about a second bodily coming at the end of history or the end of the New Covenant era. When the context indicates quite clearly, read Matthew 23 in the beginning of 24, that our Lord is uh, discussing the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem. And this use proved by the following observations. Now I know that some Reformed scholars say, well, there's some double fulfillments in there about the second coming. Uh, but I don't have time to get into it, but that's 
unlikely. I think the second coming comes after verse 34. Number one, <clears throat> Jesus repeatedly says that the events he is discussing, at least up to verse 32 in Matthew, will be seen by the generation currently living when Christ is speaking. Remember the question that precipitated Matthew 24 is, Lord, tell us when will these things be? What things? Well, Jesus told them not one stone will be standing upon another. All this is going to come to the ground. They were admiring the beauty of the temple complex and how beautiful the temple was. And Jesus said, oh, I want you to know that all this is going to be completely destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another, which happened literally. It was fulfilled perfectly. When they burnt the temple, the, te the Romans, the temple, the inside of the temple was lined with sheets of gold. And uh, the temple had been burned, and there was all kinds of ornaments and gold pieces in the temple. And the Romans burnt the temple to the ground. And when it burned to the ground, all the gold melted and went into all the rocks and the foundation stones. So they pried them, they got big, they pried them apart and ripped all the stones apart so they could get the gold out. Not one stone was left upon another. That literally is true. So the assigned a special signification to use of the fig tree, excuse me, Jesus repeatedly says that events he's discussing is for the current generation, not a future generation in the distant 2,000 years down the road. <clears throat> you will be hated, Luke 21, 17. You will be betrayed, Luke 21, 16. You will see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, Luke 21, 20. You. That generation. The question about the destruction of Jerusalem is bracketed by two unambiguous time indicators. Matthew 23:36, Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And he's talking about the judgment upon Israel. And then Matthew 24, 34, Assuredly, I say to you, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. Note Jesus' words to his disciples in 24, 33. So you also, when you see all these things, know that it, and what is it in context? The destruction of Jerusalem is near. It. The whole context. He's talking about the destruction of Jerusalem. Moreover, in the Greek language, the word this, when speaking about a generation, always refers to the current generation. And that's just the way we use English as well. If I say to you, this is a wicked generation in America, are you going to think about a generation 2,000 years from now? No, I'm talking about this generation. Right now. If a distant generation is being described, the speaker will say that generation. This generation is made of a bunch of scumbags and deserves judgment by God. But that generation, you can say that of the past, that generation of the Puritans was a godly generation. Or that generation in the future, there'll be a revival. So we speak the same way. The fact that Jesus repeatedly says this generation, and the fact that the point of the discourse, at least up to verse 34, is to answer the question when Jerusalem will be destroyed, proves that dispensationalists are imposing their own presuppositions on the text. Okay, our interpretation has to be historical and grammatical. Number two, Matthew 24, 30 tells us that the Jesus is not describing his literal bodily second coming to earth, but a coming in judgment. And this is the mistake of the dispensationalist. This is also the mistake of the full preterist. Jesus is coming in judgment. That's very different than what Jesus talks about in Acts 1, when he says, just as I go up to heaven bodily, you can see my body floating up in the sky, I'm coming back. The same way, in the same manner. That's, a different, that's different than this. This is a coming in judgment. The Greek literally says, then will appear the sign of the Son of Man in the heavens, or in heaven. 
The in heaven applies to Jesus in his glorified state. The passage does not teach that Christ will appear in the sky, but that the smoking ruins full of dead bodies in Jerusalem is the sign or proof that Jesus of Nazareth has been exalted to God's right hand. And I, you know, I could spend a whole sermon just on this one point. He, you know, when he's at his trial, you're going to see the Son of Man coming in power. The audience there, that generation. Well, that doesn't refer to the second bodily coming. That's the mistake modernists make. That's the mistake full preterists make. It's referring to a coming in judgment. That's it. <clears throat> Luke 21, 20 says, but when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then know that desolation is near. Whose armies? The Roman armies. He's not talking about a future revived Roman Empire thousands of years in the future. That's ridiculous. Number three, a generation to the ancient Jews was around 40 years. On that, me and Hal and Z agree. And you could... I'm not going to take the time, it would take too much time, but I can demonstrate that by looking at different things in Scripture. When God forced the Jews to stay in the wilderness until the whole generation of those who refused to go into the promised land and conquer it because of unbelief, it took precisely 45 years. Joshua 14, 6-10. From the time they came back and gave the bad report till the time they actually entered the land, after everybody died, except the children, and Joshua and Caleb was 45 years. Israel became a nation state 1948, May 1948. Currently it is 2023, which is 75 and a half years after their nationhood. Consequently, the dispensational date setting has been proved to be false by the lack of fulfillment. A generation is not 75 and a half years. Pretty soon it'll be 80 years. Pretty soon it'll be 90 years. And then what are they going to do? Well, they've already started to develop arguments to get around it. The argument which says that they did not possess Jerusalem until 1967, which was popular, when the 1948 date no longer was tenable, it doesn't work either. For becoming a real nation with borders and the land did not happen... Uh, did happen in 1948-1967, not 1967. And if you're going to follow that argument, they still don't own all the land. You know, they don't have the Gaza, the Gaza Strip is controlled by those terrorists, and the West Bank is controlled by the Palestinians, so they really don't have all the land. And then B, 1967 is still 57 years ago, and is still too distant for one generation. People didn't live that long in the old days, generally. Some did. Some lived to be very old. But a lot of people didn't. The, average, the reason that our Social Security started at age 65 back in the early 1930s was because most men were dead by the age of 65. Nowadays, if you die at the age of 65, that's considered very, very young because most you know, men are living to 78, 79. And then four. If one reads the Olivet Discourse carefully, the specific sign given for the destruction of Jerusalem being near, that is, Jesus coming in judgment, not a literal bodily coming, is the abomination of desolation, Matthew 24, 15. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, get out of town! Flee to the mountains! The Romans brought their idols and their pagan war ensigns into the city, and they even offered sacrifices in the temple to their gods before they burned it to the ground, which, by the way, happened uh, before in their history. The fig tree symbolism, or all the trees that show expanding buds, is a general indicator connected to what? Observing all these things, plural. The, all these things in the context refers to all these things associated with the destruction of Jerusalem. Not the second bodily coming of Christ. So 
So what things? The signs pre described previously. Therefore, it cannot be some esoteric, highly ambiguous prophecy about Israel becoming a nation in 1948, which is around 1,918 years in the future when Jesus said this. Hey, you guys better be really concerned about this. 2,000 years from now, this is going to happen. When they just asked him, hey, Lord, tell us when the temple's going to be destroyed. When's it going to happen? Hey, guys, 2,000 years from now, the olive's going to bud. No, that's not what's going on. So the, the fig tree dispensational position has nothing to do with the disciples' question in Matthew 24.3. This question relates to Jesus coming in judgment to destroy the temple and bring an end to the Jewish nation as the visible church. Okay, the expression, the end of the age, doesn't mean the end of the world. It means the end of the Jewish age. The end of the Jewish age as the visible church. The end of the new covenant age doesn't occur until Jesus comes back bodily. And it's surrounded by a bunch of things that are unmistakable, contrary to full preterist, which is heresy. There'll be a rapture. There'll be a descent from heaven with the shout and the voice of archangel. The bot, there'll be a literal bodily resurrection. Those things haven't happened yet. <clears throat> Third, According to Jesus' own words, the Jews as a nation with borders in Judea no longer has any special significance in the New Covenant era. There is no such thing as a holy land, Judea. I hate to use the term Palestine because there's no such thing as a Palestinian. They're just Arabs who are claiming that to try to get the land. Uh, that's a subject for another day. It's Judea. Or a holy city, Jerusalem. Jerusalem is not holy. I, I hear this all the time with this war with uh, Hamas or whatever. Um, they say all three religions regard Jerusalem as holy. Not biblical Christians. Holy, holy festival days, holy incense, holy buildings like a holy temple, holy city, Jerusalem, the holy land. Uh, they were holy in the Old Covenant era. They are not holy today. There is no holy area that's set apart in that special way. <clears throat> There's no such thing as a holy land, Judea, or a holy city, Jerusalem, or a holy site for worship the temple. Modern Judea and Jerusalem holds, no, holds a historical interest, but not a theological or salvific interest anymore. And I can prove that. Here's Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now in vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive his fruit, its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Then he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all, he sent his only his son to, him, to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? They said to him, he will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruit in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read the scriptures? The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing and is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but on whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. Now listen to this. Now when the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitude because they took him for a prophet. The point of this parable is very clear and it is designed to establish the evidence for our Lord's verdict on Israel in, verses, in verse 41. 
the verdict, which is the removal of special kingdom or covenant privileges, is then endorsed by a quote from Psalm 118, 22-23, which, by the way, the Jews sang it on the Passover. So at the Passover meal, where we had the first Lord's Supper, this psalm was sang, which is just an interesting note. The point here is that this calamity on Israel was prophesied and designed by God to shift the kingdom of grace to the multinational church, which is throughout the whole world. The kingdom was, their privileged covenant status was taken away from them when Christ died on the cross. Then to conclude, Jesus is very, in very explicit language restates the verdict without any parabolic elements, so no one can misunderstand what he is saying. The figurative language is dropped, and the tenses become literal futures instead of prophetic aorists. The word used for nation is ethnos, which can mean people. For example, the people of Israel, or nation. The word nation is used because the Jews who believe in Christ are still part of the Christian church, which is the new nation that replaces Israel as God's covenant people. Okay, national Israel is not significant anymore salvifically. They're not the visible church. If there's a mass conversion of Jews, which I believe there will be, they'll be part of the Christian church. And they'll be regrafted onto the olive tree. In 1 Peter 2, 8-9, the apostle takes terminology that had been used of Israel in the Old Testament, and he applies it to the New Covenant church. Verse 8 indicates the Jews as a nation were rejected due to unbelief. They stumble, being disobedient to the word, to which they also were appointed. But you, he's talking to Christians, but you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, you Christians. The Jews as object of God's grace are not rejected, but the covenantal nation state, their position as a covenantal nation state has been rejected. They can become a nation. There is a Jewish nation now, but it has no salvific significance. By faith, Jews still enter the multinational church of Christ. The Jews rejected the stone, which would become the chief cornerstone of the whole kingdom of God, that is, the whole kingdom of grace and salvation on planet Earth. Their rejection and killing of the Messiah was the culmination of centuries of rebellion. And the rejecting of God sent prophets, consequently from you, the Jews as a special covenant nation, the special kingdom privileges and special standing as the only visible church on planet earth will be taken away. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about. They rejected the owner of the vineyard and his only begotten son because they wanted an autonomous religion based on human achievement or works, not God's sovereign grace. The leaders and people of Israel had become arrogant and foolish in their heretical salvation by works replacement of salvation by grace alone through faith in the Messiah alone. They thought that only through their nation would God rule on earth. Remember when Jesus came, the view of the Jews in the day of Jesus was the Messiah would come, he'd form a giant army, and he would conquer the Greeks and the Romans and the Persians and take over the planet militarily. Rule by force, rule by the sword. And Jesus said, I don't want any part of that. That's not, that's not the view of the kingdom. The kingdom uh, is achieved by the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of God, not by the sword, the physical sword. If they had studied scripture, they would have seen that God always included the Jewish expression of the church, intended the Jewish expression of the church to be temporary. God told Abraham that through his seed, singular, he would bless all nations. Moreover, the covenant law always required good fruit or a godly life as the result of, of a saving relationship with God. Since Israel refu refused to produce good fruit or covenant faithfulness, God produced a new nation, the church who would. And I didn't get to it today, but in Romans 11, Paul goes on a tangent in application, and he says, hey, you, you Christians... You Gentile Christians, if you don't produce fruit, you'll be removed from the tree as well. 
So the whole dispensational idea that God still has two separate peoples, ethnic Israel and the multinational Christian church, is obviously heretical. It's wrong. It assumes that a person can reject, despise, and hate Jesus Christ and accuse him of being a blasphemer while remaining in covenant with God. Uh, and of course, they call him a magician and a blasphemer. But we're still told they're God's people and they're in covenant with God. It assumes that one can habitually break the covenant and still be a wholly separate people. Jesus called the Pharisaical Jewish synagogues in the first century, Revelation 2.9, synagogues of Satan. That's not the Apostle John. That's what Jesus says. Jesus himself said that. They're synagogues of Satan. Paul said that not all Israel is of Israel, but only the remnant who believes in Christ. The second passage of significance is John 4, 21-24. Jesus said to her, that's the Samaritan woman, and remember the Samaritans were a syncretistic sect, uh, and they were inbred, Gentiles mixed with Jews, and they, had a, they developed their own religion, and they worshipped on Mount Gerizim. They did not worship in Jerusalem. When believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. The hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. So Jesus is well aware. The old order with the temple, the sacrifices, the incense, the ceremonies, the festival days, were set out of gear the moment Jesus died on the cross. The moment he died, the veil of the temple from top to bottom was torn in two. The end of the age, mentioned in Matthew 24, refers to the end of the Jewish age. So what was definitive, the moment Jesus died, was made a historical reality in AD 70. God, in his grace and mercy, gave them a full generation for the apostles to preach to them and throughout the Roman Empire, gathering the elect Jews out of Israel, out of mercy, and then they were destroyed. Okay, so that's the fig tree. Now, what about Luke 21-24? A passage I've never looked at before in, in depth, and it's very interesting. A passage that has been uh, appealed to as evidence for the restitution, uh, re re reconstitution of Israel as a nation is Luke 21-24. And I think this is a much better passage. And they, it's the Jews, will, and this is Jesus speaking, will fall by the edge of the sword, and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled, the old King James, trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Now, what does that sound like to you upon a casual reading? Well, it appears that after a period of Gentile control over Jerusalem called the time of the Gentiles, it sounds like the Jews are going to regain control of the city. It'll be trodden down by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. That's what the word intel implies. Well, let us examine this verse in detail and see if this interpretation is tenable. Now, regarding the first part of the verse, there is general agreement by scholars. The Jews in the city will fall by the edge of the sword. The sword means, uh, literally, in Greek, the mouth of the sword, indicating a great slaughter. The picture is sword just slaying people left and right. <clears throat> According to Josephus, 1,100,000 Jews were killed in the city by the Romans. That's a lot of people. And, you know, they're talking about the steps around the temple were literally drenched in blood. Blood was literally running down the steps. This is due to the fact that people from the countryside would flee to the walled city for protection. Remember what happened in their history. The Romans attacked, there was a rebellion by the Zealots. The Romans attacked Vespasian. He attacked and he, there was a great slaughter in Galilee and the north of Israel by the Romans. Then Nero, uh, who ordered Israel to be destroyed, uh, was slain. He was assassinated. And then there was a fight for who would become the Caesar and Vespasian went back to Rome. So there was a break in the fighting. Uh, Vespasian uh, goes back to Rome and 
he's replaced by Titus. Titus will come back and he'll finish the job. <clears throat> when Titus, the victorious general, had his triumphal procession in Rome, 97,000 Jewish captives were in the parade before they were sold into slavery. 97,000. It's pretty tragic. That the Jews were led captive into all nations was all, also fulfilled, and everybody agrees. This is a far greater judgment upon Israel than the conquest of Babylon, 587 B.C. The destruction by Babylon led to a 70-year period of captivity, after which a remnant returned, and the nation, with the temple and the worship, was reestablished. Ezra and Nehemiah. This judgment has more in common with the north's destruction by Assyria in 722 BC when the northern tribes were slaughtered and scattered to the four winds. So this is a very severe judgment. Well, I forgot to say that the city was sealed off on April AD 70, right before the city... Uh, uh, right after the city had been filled with pilgrims for the Passover. After a siege of five months, the walls were breached and the slaughter began, and the city was literally drenched in, with blood. Now, the dispersion or scattering of the Jews due to God's judgment was promised in the covenant sanction section of Deuteronomy 28, 64-65. Listen to this. Then the Lord will scatter you among the peoples from one end of the earth to the other. And there uh, they will serve other gods, which neither you nor your fathers have known, wood and stone. And among those nations you shall find no rest, nor shall the sole of your foot have a resting place. But there the Lord will give you a trembling heart, failing eyes, and anguish of soul. So we have the tragic case of the wandering, persecuted Jew throughout history. Pro you know, basically prophesied by God himself in Deuteronomy. And it's just a tragic fact of history that the Jews have been persecuted everywhere they went. They have the pogroms. And they've been persecuted. And they're still hated to this day. Look at the campuses. Look at, our, look at the liberals. It, it's irrational. The Jews are not like Muslims. They're, they're not going around killing people. They're a peaceful people. They tend to be intellectually very adept. Now, they're, not, they're totally pagan. They're hostile to the gospel still. But they're a peaceful people. And uh, this, this hatred of the Jews is irrational. The expression Jesus will be trampled upon and what follows has been interpreted in a number of different uh, manners. The city will be trodden down of the Gentiles or nations is interpreted either as only the Roman control and conquest of the city or of the Gentiles who controlled the Middle East long after as well. The Romans, the Muslims, the Papists, the Muslims, the British, the Arabs. You could include the Franks in there. The part of the passage that determines the meaning of uh, the land being trodden underfoot is the times of the Gentiles. So let us look at the different views of this expression and determine the best interpretation. Number one, the full preterist view, which is the view of Gary DeMar, who according to uh, dependable witnesses is a full preterist himself and now he's a heretic and we should boycott all of his books. <clears throat> Um, is that the time of the Gentiles simply refers to the four Gentile kingdoms of Daniel 2, of which Rome is the final expression. They conclude that Rome is the final kingdom to oppress the Jews. Consequently, they argue that the destruction of the temple in the city of Jerusalem, the time of the Gentiles, is completed. This view is exceptionally rare. Um, I found it in Gary DeMar, Last Day's Madness, but it I couldn't find it in any commentaries. He's the only one who has this view. And is untenable for a number of reasons. First, the connection to Daniel 2 is arbitrary, forced, and does not grow out of the immediate context. 
The point of Daniel 2 is to tell us when the Messiah will come and when his kingdom will be established. The kingdoms of this world, in principle, are defeated at the cross and empty tomb. But the stone which strikes the image and grows into a great mountain takes a long period of time, not just 40 years. Second, Rome's oppression of the Jews did not end in AD 70, but continued on long after the destruction of Jerusalem. You've heard of Masada and the Jews in Masada. They were holed up in Masada, and the Romans surrounded the mountain in AD 72, and they were not destroyed. They committed suicide after they built an earthen ramp in AD 73. Then there were Jews, um, some Jews remained in Judea after the destruction of the temple. And there was another revolt. I didn't look up the date. I, this is from my past study of Jewish history. It's around 110 AD. They had another revolt against Rome, which also was crushed by the Romans. And at that time, the Jews were not even permitted to live in Judea. They were completely kicked out totally. Third, Gary DeMar and the full preterist must ignore the word and tell, which suggests or strongly implies some kind of future restoration of the Jews to Jerusalem. The fulfillment of Daniel 2 involves breaking in pieces and consuming all these kingdoms. Rome did not adopt Christianity until A.D. 312. And the routing of heathenism took even longer within the empire. The Jews, even to this day, do not fully control Jerusalem. And the area of Palestine was not liberated from the Gentiles in A.D. 70. and was under the control of Gentiles until at least 1967. And even now much of the city is still populated by evil Muslims who hate the Jews. Two. Another view is that the times of the Gentiles or nations refers to the period of judgment on the Gentile nations by God. The time of Jerusalem's judgment will be followed by a period of judgment upon the nations as well. This view seems to be popular with liberal scholars. And it's based upon prophecies in the Old Testament. For example, in Jeremiah and, and Isaiah, uh, God will have these descriptions of the destruction of Jerusalem, and then there'll be prophecies of, uh, about the destruction of those people who destroyed Jerusalem. And so these scholars say, well, that must be what he's talking about. God's going to destroy the Gentiles too. It's largely based on that pattern in the Old Testament where the pagan nations used to judge Israel were then judged by God. Isaiah 10, Isaiah 13 to 14, Isaiah 33, Isaiah 47, Jeremiah 50 and 51, Daniel 9, 26 to 27. This view, like the previous one, leaves the word until basically unresolved. Moreover, the judgment of God on Rome and other Gentile nations did not liberate Jerusalem from Gentile control, which seems to be the point of what Jesus is saying. Number three. The last position, which is the majority position among the Puritans and Presbyterians and conservative scholars, comes in two different variations. One is that the time of the Gentiles is essentially equivalent to the fullness of Gentiles in Romans 11.25. After a long period of history where the gospel spreads and is dominant among the Gentiles and the Gentiles are largely converted, the focus of grace will shift back to the Jews who will become Christian and they will control Jerusalem again as Christians. A variant of this view and I, this is like J.C. Ryle and, and many others, a variation of this view is that the time of the Gentiles refers to the time that the gospel is dominant among the Gentiles, and the Jews, of course, are still blind and obstinate. Then after a long period of dominance among the Gentile nations, the majority of Gentile churches will reject the Bible and the gospel and become blind and wicked. As In, in the best view presentation of this view is J.C. Ryle. As they apostatize and are cut off by God, the Lord will shift his attention back on the Jews. They will be converted, 
and blessed and therefore will possess the homeland again as faithful Christians. And most of the churchmen and scholars who hold these positions associate the conversion of the Jews with the period immediately before the second coming of Christ. And I don't know why they do that, because it, I guess that's, they think it's implied, but it's not stated anywhere. Here's the, here's the best representation of the third view, is that of John Gill. And I forget when it came out, 1800, 1810. And Jerusalem shall be trodden down to the Gentiles. The Romans who plowed up the city and temple and laid them level with the ground. And which spot has ever been in, inhabited by such who are not Jews is Turks and Papists. So it will be until the times of the Gentiles be fulfilled. That is, all the fullness of the Gentiles is brought in until the gospel is preached all over the world and all God's elect are gathered out of all the nations and then the Jews will be converted and return to their own land and rebuild and inhabit Jerusalem. But till that time, it will be uh, as it has been and still is possessed by the Gentiles. So that's the majority view. Matthew Henry, John, you know, and it seems to be what the passage is saying. That, now I don't know about how close it is to the second coming and all that stuff, and you know, but they're reading a lot into that. But it does seem to be saying that Jerusalem will be dominated by pagans, by Gentiles, uh, and then a time will come when the Jews will have the city back. That's what it seems to be saying. The Jews had already established a nation-state in Judea and have recaptured Jerusalem. But they will not fully control Jerusalem and have peace until they are converted to Christ. Remember, everything I've read, well, except the modern commentators, all these old commentators, Jerusalem uh, did not have hardly any Jews at all. And it had not been, you know, it was basically very sparsely populated. <clears throat> but they will not have full control and have peace until they are converted to Christ. The word until certainly suggests some variation of this interpretation. Jerusalem will continue to be subjugated and debased until God has mercy on Israel, converts them to Christ, and restores them to covenant blessings in the Christian church. And this obviously has not yet occurred. Preaching the gospel publicly in Israel is illegal. Um, now, the biggest gay parade in the world is in Jerusalem, is in Israel. I don't know if you know that. They have the biggest gay pro pride, pro gay pride parade in the whole world is in Jerusalem. I'm mean, not Jerusalem. It's in Israel. And um, secular Jews don't really care if you talk to them about the gospel. They'll just laugh at you. But the conservative Jews, the the ortho, highly orthodox, they'll beat your face in. I know. I know. I'm, I've know a couple people that were missionaries there, and it 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 can be. One guy had his. Uh, you know, he got beat up and his apartment was completely destroyed. And then after he got back from the hospital, there was a warning uh, in front of his apartment. Don't come back. <laughs> so. so the providential um, preservation of the Jewish people throughout 2,000 years of wandering and persecution seems to be part of God's plan. And it is certainly amazing. That there's still a distinct people. Yeah, have they interbred? There's the Ashkenazis. They've interbred with, you know, Russians and Polish and Germans and so forth. Yeah, but they still have Jewish blood, and they're still consider themselves Jews. What we must, however, reject is the dispensational view that says that God will bless Israel apart from their inclusion in the Church of Christ. Apart from Christ, they are apostate. They are pagan, they are idolaters, they are enemies of God. And then we're going to look at one more thing just briefly. And uh, I wish I had spent more time on this. This is a, a lot of these passages that you read them and they seem kind, kind of simple. There's a lot of different views and they're, they're, they're kind of more complex. Let's just look at Romans 11, 26 to 32. Uh, the gifts and calling unrevocable. What does that mean? The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And by the way, this is right after he, Paul promises that all Israel will be saved. The deliverer will come out of Zion, he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. 
for this is my covenant with them, and I will take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so, these also have now been disobedient, and through the mercy shown you, they will also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that he might have mercy upon all. That's both Jew and Gentile. So thus far we've looked at Paul's argument as to why God has not fully rejected ethnic Israel. You know, hey, I got a remnant. Um, a lot of Jews believe in Christ, and so forth. God has always saved a remnant within Israel, and God has always had a plan regarding Israel's partial rejection, so that A, the gospel would go forth into all the world, and then B, Israel on a broad scale will be restored to gospel favor and blessings. We looked at that last week. They as a people will repent and turn from unbelief and hostility to faith in Christ. They will be grafted back onto the one olive tree. And this point, as we have noted, does not mean that every single Jew in the world will become Christian, but that apparently a large proportion will. The mass of Israel will be converted. Paul now supports this teaching with two arguments. The first argument is based on the Old Testament promises or prophecies. The first quote is based on Isaiah 59, 20-21, and Jeremiah 31-34. Uh, the Deliverer who is Jesus Christ, the Savior and Redeemer, will come out of Zion to save Jacob or Israel from her sins. How? Well, the cross and empty tomb, the atonement. There's only one way to be saved, and it's by Jesus Christ. If you're a Gentile or Jew, there's only one way to be saved. You have to believe in the sacrificial death of Christ as an atoning death, as a, a propitiatory sacrifice that expiates sin and guilt, and you have to believe in the resurrection. The apostle is thinking of a time in the future when the hardening of Israel will terminate. Jesus has achieved a perfect redemption, and he is in charge of the gifts of regeneration and faith, and he will save Jacob. Their ungodliness and opposition will be turned into love and obedience. The second quote is from Isaiah 59, 20 and 27, 9, and focuses on God's covenant. God's covenant with Abraham is part of the covenant of grace, and Israel is included in this covenant. The future restoration of Israel is certified by nothing less than the certainty belonging to the covenant institution by God. Paul is speaking about the effect of Jesus' death and resurrection upon Israel. After the fullness of the Gentiles will come the fullness of the Jews, which, according to Paul, is promised in the Old Testament and is taught in the covenant. And you, you read this whole section, and I know there's a lot, the Dutch and a lot of people like to prefer, well, he's just talking about the remnant being saved. Well, it goes beyond that. There's going to be a mass revival. Uh, there's going to be a mass conversion among the Jews at some time in the future. Christ will save Israel by removing their sins and causing them to be covenantally faithful sanctification. And this is Paul's inspired interpretation of these passages. Therefore, his application must become our application. Whenever the New Testament interprets an Old Testament passage, it's inspired. So it's not my version, my interpretation versus your interpretation. Paul's interpretation stands as God's interpretation. The second argument is based on the fact that God's election is irrevocable. In 1128-29 we read, Concerning the gospel they are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So Paul sets up an antithesis that sounds contradictory. They're enemies, right now, they're enemies of Christ and all Christians. And they are loved. That is, God has a saving love toward them. Obviously not all of them, but to those who are elect individually, and they will be saved. God is hostile toward them now, and they are under his judgment for their hostility to Christ and his church. Yet they are the objects of God's love because they are his elected chosen people. And once again, this does not mean every single individual Jew. It means the elect with individually within Israel. 
They had rejected the gospel and therefore had been cast away, and the gospel was uh, then focused upon the Gentiles. But nevertheless, because of their election by God, on account of their relation to the fathers and the covenant, God's saving love will flow to them when the time of the Gentiles is over. The word beloved means that God has not suspended or rescinded his relationship to Israel as his chosen people in terms of the covenants made with the fathers. Now, this is difficult. Uh, of course, the Dutch, like Hendrickson and so forth, they're going to say, well, this is all referring to individual election. A lot of others, John Murray and others, say, well, he's talking about national election. But even if you take that view that he's talking about national election of Israel, uh, the assumption is always that uh, the saving love only goes to the elect within national Israel. In other words, promises were made to national Israel, even though only the uh, remnant is saved. However, uh, that points to the fact that national Israel will be saved in mass toward the end. I know it's difficult. Now, even though Israel has been unfaithful and has broken the covenant and been crushed under God's wrath, God still has a plan for them in the kingdom of his grace due to the, his particular covenant relationship to them. This covenantal relation will be demonstrated and vindicated by their restoration in the future. Due to their national election, there is still a sense in which the Jews are the chosen special people of God, or we could say the elect Jews, individual Jews, will be saved by God and included in the church of Christ. They are the descendants of the holy patriarchs with whom the covenant was made and to whom the special promises were made. They are the reason laid out by Paul as to why God is determined to bring them, the elect within Israel, back into the one olive tree. So even though, if you take that view of John Murray, that Paul is speaking of Israel in a broad sense, God's saving love is always and only directed to the elect individual election. And he's, Paul's not going to contradict himself in the same epistle. Chapter 9 Jacob I love, Esau I hate it. Those in the visible church have certain privileges, the word, church membership, discipline. But only the elect or the invisible church receive salvation. Paul connects their special covenant status to a future great conversion, but this does not mean that he rejects his own teaching on individual election in Romans 9 or Ephesians chapter 1. The regard for the promises to the fathers does not mean that those who reject Christ and hate the gospel are God's people. It is set out as a reason in God's plan to have a great national revival in Israel's future. I hope I, I know that's hard to understand, but this passage is totally perverted by dispensationalists to teach that God has two separate peoples. God loves Israel no matter what they do, no matter what they do. Uh, you know, they can kill Christians. And then Paul supports this teaching with a statement, verse 29, for the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. When God makes promises and he gives gifts, he never breaks them. He never goes back on what he promises. It is because of God's steadfast faithfulness that we can have confidence in the future restoration of Israel in the new covenant church of Christ. That's what Paul is saying. This refers to an effectual call that, of course, only applies to individual election, God's gracious gifts also apply, only apply uh, to individual election. National Israel was of the covenant and had all these privileges. But only the elect in Israel actually received the promises. You have to have faith in Christ to be saved. And how do you get faith in Christ? Well, you have to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit. How are you regenerated by the Holy Spirit? Well, that flows from union with Christ on the cross. So if you're not saved, it means you weren't regenerated. And if you weren't regenerated, it means you weren't united to Christ on the cross. It means Christ did not die for you. Not all the covenant, not all of the covenant, are actually in the covenant. God was angry with Israel because of their rebellion and apostasy, but he always loves the elect. And he will bring them to salvation. The fact that the Jews were God's covenant people, national election, lies behind God's plan for a massive conversion in the future of Jews, individual election. 
I wish I had more time to spend on on this because it, it was difficult. I thought that it's a difficult passage. It is though God does not want his promises to Israel to look like a failure in history. So he planned a mass conversion to the truth among the Jews before Jesus returns. The veracity of God guarantees that the promises made with the fathers will be fulfilled. They but they are only truly fulfilled in those who are individually elected and possess genuine faith in Christ. Why do I say that? Well, dispensationalists are the vast majority of them are Arminian. And thus they have a number of false conclusions based on this section of scripture. They say God has two separate peoples, that God has Israel and God has the church. But that is not what Paul is saying. He is he is discussing why there will be a massive conversion of Jews in the future. Remember, Paul has just said that they were cut off of the olive tree because of unbelief. If you're an unbelieving Jew, you're not on the olive tree. You're not part of God's church. You are not technically God's son or God's people. You're not adopted. You're not justified. Okay, you can't. You can't say there's such a thing as being God's people simply based on ethnicity. That would contradict so many passages. It's not because of the will, John chapter 1. It's not because of blood. It's not because you're born Jewish. It's because of regeneration and faith that you're part of God's people. He also says not all Israel is true Israel. He says that circumcision accomplishes nothing without heart regeneration. Promises of salvation can only be fulfilled by those who actually believe in Christ. Those who refuse to believe in Christ are still enemies of God. God's saving love always saves and is always intended for the elect. Therefore, unbelieving Israel are not God's people. They are Satan's people. However, due to the promises to the fathers and God's special love to the elect, all Israel will be saved. National election serves the purposes of individual election. But you don't want to take that beyond what Paul's argument is and say, oh, God has two separate peoples. And you got all these Christians. They have, there's Christians, they have Jews. I'm talking about Orthodox Jews. They deny that Christ is the Messiah. And they come and speak in their church. Hagee, for example, he's in Texas somewhere. He has people. For, he has Jews speak in his church, and they act like they're God's people. No, if you don't believe in Christ, you cannot be God's people. The Bible's crystal clear about that. So the Jews can only be God's people by believing in Christ and joining the Christian church. So on the one hand, I, I think we don't want to accept the, the, the predominantly Dutch and Lutheran view that uh, this, is, this whole lengthy dissertation is just about the remnant. Um, I think there is something to the fact that there will be a mass conversion to the Jews. And that's what the Puritans taught. That's what the early Presbyterians taught. That's what the, the majority of solid commentators say. So I think there's something to that. But yet we want to avoid the error that the dispensationalist falls into that says, oh, well, uh, Israel's special and God, God has two peoples. Uh, the nation of Israel right now is an, is an antichrist nation that are the enemies of Christians. Now, of course, I side in this conflict with Hamas. Of course, I side with Israel because they're the, they're the, we're the innocent party and they were attacked by murderers and terrorists. And uh, Hamas, is, they don't care about the Palestinians. They're, they're very strict uh, Muslims and the doctrine of Islam is is that once a country was controlled by Islam, they should they have to retake it. That's taught. That's Orthodox Islam. Islam is a religion of the sword. It's a religion of violence and death. It's a death cult. And um, now, if they were consistent, they would have to take back the southern part of Spain, and they'd have to take part of, part of the Balkans back. Now they won't even try that because they know it's not going to happen. But they think somehow they can go after Israel. So it's a death cult, and we should side with Israel in this because they're the innocent party, and they have a just war on their hands, and it's going to be bloody, it's going to be nasty, but they're going to have to do what they have to do. And, uh, you know, in the old days, if this happened 100 years ago, Hamas would be, the whole, the whole thing would be driven into the ocean. They'd be, they'd be done. But now uh, we have, 
people telling them to go take it easy on these on these murderers. Well, no, don't take it easy on them. But anyway, I hope that helps. I know it's a difficult to topic, and um, I was always a just you know I was a dispensationalist. And I always had a very perverted view of these things. So we want to have a, a biblical view of Israel and God's plan. Uh, and the Bible does say quite a, quite a bit about Israel and God's plan. And I, I've covered it the best I can. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for your future plan for the conversion of Israel. And we pray that that would take place. And we pray that uh, you'd bring revival to the Gentiles, for they're in a bad state right now, a really bad state. The nations have abandoned your word and your gospel and your son for secular humanism, and they're reaping the fruit of that chaos, that Satanism, that human autonomy. We also pray for victory for Israel over Hamas, that you would slaughter those evil Muslims, that death cult. Those responsible for murder should be put to death. So help Israel and have victory over Hamas and those who falsely call themselves Palestinians. They're not Palestinians. They're just angry Arabs full of hatred. In Jesus' name, amen.